This week's episode of Coming Up Next Podcast is brought to you by you. That's right. You, the person listening to this show, the listener, the people of the Coming Up Next work. This show is brought to you by you because without you, there is no show and you can take an active part in keeping the show rolling and keeping the momentum of the show up. All you have to do is open up your iTunes, your Stitcher or your Podbean account and click the subscribe button. That way the show is just going to download into your application automatically every week. And uh, if you're feeling particularly active, like you want to be super active woman or man, you can leave a five-star rating and a review. I know it seems a little bit weird and like maybe, hey, how's this going to help? But believe me when I say it does help, it's going to help me bring you the awesome guests from my mouth to your ear holes that I do every week like my guest on episode 102 of Coming Up Next Podcast, Scott Caulfield. Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. Bosspods.com. Podcast like a boss. I was uh, reminiscing about when we met in New York uh, at the, <laughs> the New York uh, uh, International Independent Film Festival. Yeah, that yeah. That must have been in 2009. I think it was, yeah. I think, yeah, it pretty much was. I got a really cool photo, actually, of that, um, of uh, the cinema where, where it was playing, actually. I've got hanging up in my house here. Oh, yeah? You were there with your film Crooked Business. That's right, yeah, with Chris Neist. Yeah, and, and if I recall correctly, after, it was, must have been after the opening night party or maybe it was the screening, you got hit by a taxi. Yeah, <laughs> I got I got pinned between a taxi and some lady driving a Volvo. Uh, no, some young guy driving a Volvo. And I got wedged between the two cars and put a giant dent in the in the taxi. Just that I was a bit lickered up and I probably didn't get as hurt as I probably should have. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a um, that was that was a pretty amazing experience for me. Um, you know. I was there with a short film that I'd made uh, and the guy who shot oh. it. Um, what was his name? Sorry? What was his name? I was trying to think of who, who's the other guy you're with? Damo. Damien was his name. That's right, yeah. Didn't he work at Lemac? Yeah, he did. He, he, yeah, yeah. he actually just did a five-year kind of stint in LA and he's just moved back and he's working for Lemac again. Oh, good on him. Oh, yeah. Cool. So if you need any gear in Melbourne, and um, by gear yeah. I mean equipment, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's your man. Right, I, damn, that, that sounds like a good good plan. Because I always saw that um, trailer you guys were cutting to it was in setting that little teaser that was sitting in the servo there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was that was great. I love that, and I was just always hoping that thing got got some got some oxygen and took off because it was such a cool little um, teaser promo. Well, there's still, uh, I guess there's still potentially life. It's actually 10 years now since since we made that, which is a pretty mind-blowing kind of uh, thought to have. Um, yeah. But, you know, it definitely, it's one of those things where it kind of, there, there are so many threads that came from that project that I never would have been fortunate enough to kind of had, have had if I had didn't have that experience, like relationships and friendships and um, and collaborative partners, 
um, that I've fostered from the experience of making that film. I guess you've probably had a similar kind of experience. It's between making Crooked Business and making Don't Tell, I guess, um, you know, that there's quite a lot of, uh, of time. Did you... Um, did you kind of take those relationships that you made and, and go on to make other things? Or I know you spent a lot of time trying to get other projects up um, off the ground. Yeah, I found I just sort of had the, um, your relationships you do get, and especially in the, you know, in the film industry, as you know, it's a pretty tight-knit kind of community and and, and so are the crews. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the guy, Mark Wareham, shot um, Crooked Business, so he was the DP of that, and that was a incredibly low budget film, and um, you know he he was came on and saved me on that one because he just could bring in a whole bunch of great crew for almost hardly anyone's getting paid really, and um, and then so when I got sort of don't tell up he was the first person I called before anyone even before the direct getting a director on board or anyone it was like Mark you have to do this. And, and Mark's like so highly sought after. I mean, the guy's doing, um, you know, Jasper Jones. I mean, he's, there's so many things, you know, there's not many things he hasn't been shooting lately. He's just, um, you know, clever man. So the guy's so highly yeah, wow. sought after. He, um, he um, agreed to do it and I, I held him to it. And then, um, so yeah, you just do those, you know, all those relationships you make over the years of short films and things. And, and music videos you end up bringing into, you know, when you do get your feature up, hopefully you can pay back some favours. Producer and actor Scott Caulfield set himself the task of producing his very first feature film by the time he hit 30. And while in post-production on his debut feature film, Crooked Business, Scott hit the 3-0 and fulfilled that. Now, having just turned 40, he's completed his second feature, Don't Tell, a courtroom drama starring Jack Thompson, Rachel Griffiths and Guyton Grantley. Having had its initial cinema release earlier this year, Don't Tell is now doing a festival circuit. And to find out when it's playing at a festival near you, check out the Facebook page at facebook.com slash movie. I know you started off your career uh, similar to me as an as an actor. What was the thinking for you behind going to film school and uh, and starting process as a filmmaker? Oh, I just loved movies so much when I was a kid and as a teenager. It was like my favourite thing in the world to be is just in in a cinema, lights out, and about to experience you know, um, you know, a story that could take me places and I just loved it so much. And um, I, I think I probably, you know, I hadn't travelled a lot when I was really young and then, but then I did when I was, you know, um, finished you know, high school and started university and I was just kind of in awe of all of these amazing places in Europe and things and I just loved films and decided to have a crack and took on, you know, a uni degree, went to QT Film School in Brisbane and then I didn't think that was enough for me, so I wanted to. And so I studied acting. I started studying with Lee, at, with Lynn Kidd at the Actors Workshop in Brisbane for I spent three years studying there. So it was set up, I think, with her and Michael Caton set that school up. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So I I studied there, and then I 
think that was at nights and I was studying at film school during the day and then, um, you know, kind of I, I loved it all so much and just figured that, you know, I'm going to have to learn every part of the industry as much as I could to have a shot at getting anything going on. So, you know, so I did that acting and then I went and studied acting in um, the Lee Strasberg Theatre Institute there in New York. So Amazing. I studied there. Um, what year was, What year were you there? I think I was there in about 2000. So I'd finished my film degree and couldn't, you know, you come out of those, come out of your film degree <laughs> thinking you're going to go straight in and, you know, be a director and produce great films and end up at, you know, studios and stuff. But you find yourself, you know, scratching around trying to get some sort of a job closely related to the industry. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, and you kind of think you're going to make this new feature film, and you don't, you know, you just, you just don't realise the reality of how hard it is in the creative field to get up your projects. I think, but um, yeah. So then, 2000, I went to the Lee Strasberg School, and I think that was probably one of the, my best periods because I just loved it over there. It was exciting, you know. Everyone was talking about the um, you know, the former students that used to go there and, you know, and you know, it was, you know, it was just fantastic. And I was actually studying there at the time with, um, Deanna Miller was there actually. So she was in my class and I got to know her a bit. She was pretty cool. And who was that? Sorry. Deanna Miller. Oh, Deanna Miller. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So she was in my class and I was sort of hanging out with, with her and, um, and then you know, a couple of years later, she sort of pops up and marries. Um, she married him or Jude Law, and then she's you know she's in Alfie, and then sort of launched herself that way. But um, I uh, I had a few different teachers. My favourite was a guy called uh, Dan Grimaldi, and he's done some stuff. Um, he was in doing stuff in The Sopranos at the time, so he uh, just an incredible teacher and just a really top bloke actually and um he was by far my favorite teacher I, I really got a lot out of working with him and doing little little scenes and plays and things like that it's it's pretty amazing institute I, I also was quite was lucky enough to go there for a um for a semester and uh, you know similarly had that experience of feeling like you know you're learning from the kind of the, the top teachers who are you know and the top people have kind of treaded the boards there so to speak yeah they just have that experience and you know they've all and if they and, and a lot of them are professional um actors themselves and have done a lot of stage work because there's a lot of stage and you know and theater goes on in in new york you know and, and it's not just that the studying there it's the you just immerse yourself into it i mean i was going to um, plays, you know, at least sort of, you know, twice, two, three times a week, you know. So um, it's, you know, you get the off-Broadway and then off-off-Broadway and, and it was easy and, you, you know, you're pretty broke so you go into this play that costs like dollars <laughs> to get in and, and you know, and some of them are pretty ordinary and occasionally you find a little gem but I think you learn as much from watching the ones that aren't good as you do from the good ones to be honest. And so when did you start actually uh, making your own work? When did that begin for you? Um, I, I mean, I'd been doing a whole heap of short films um, around the time when I was at um, 
uni. So we're doing short films and you're doing little docos. And at the time you think they're all great, but if I watch them back now and be like, oh, that's appallingly bad. But, you know, <laughs> you know you're, just, <laughs> you're just learning and, you know, and, and technically the, you're okay because you're taught, but what you're missing is, is the story element and just actually having good narratives and, um, you know, and meaningful tales or, you know, so it's, it's the story element. I think a lot of that comes with experience. There's no way you can, you know, n- know a lot of things when you're, you know, you're a teenager that you, you know, then know, you know, there's no way I could have done a film like Don't Tell, which is a movie I've just um, finished now. You know, when I was that age, I just wouldn't have the perspective to even grasp what would be required of the narrative. So, um it's um, but I was doing short films and and, and acting in them and, and and you know directing them and that, I mean one of that's how I kind of met Guyton Grantly actually he and I were in a short film together um, I think it was called like the badass mono winged angel or something and right. <laughs> and yeah and so we kind of met on that short film and sort of became mates from there and stayed in touch. And then I did a short film with him a few years later, so who was which was directed by um, Meg Carlson, which is Mark Wareham, the DP's um, wife. So it was her first thing she directed and she wanted me to act in it and produce it. And so I did that and it was called Full Catch. So and that was a fun little film. So, yeah, so you do make those those contacts and you carry them on. And then Guyton's now in Don't Tell because I rang him up. He was in L.A. at the time and he's um, uh, I needed this particular character and he was the only one I thought would be right for it. And, you know, he, he's got by far the most challenging role in the whole of Don't Tell and took him a few days to agree to it. But I eventually kind of convinced him and um, he's done a fabulous job of it too. Just as a little um, aside, something that I talk to everyone about on, on the show is if they remember the first time that they created or performed or made a film, do you remember the, your first experience, uh, perhaps you know, in childhood or, or um, you know, teenage years of having acted or created something? I was more into sport when I was a kid. I mean, I was just crazy on all sorts of sports and actually you know, quite good at, you know, sport and things like that. We used to, you know, do a lot of racing and athletics and football and basketball. So so I kind of wasn't, um, didn't turn to the sort of the creative arts until towards the end of high school. But then I was too scared at the time to do anything in the field because I guess my upbringing was, you know, my father's in construction and my mum's in childcare and no one I can... And, you know, and he, my grandparents were like farmers, so no one was in kind of any sort of field that was creative. But I had this love of film and this sort of burning desire to go there. And, but I didn't even study drama at high school. I was too scared So because I was the sport kid. And, and then, you know, and I'm trying to make my way through subjects like physics and, you know, and advanced math and stuff, which I just hate. And... Um, but your guidance counsellor sort of says at the time, oh, that's the best thing for your OP or whatever the score system was there. And um, it wasn't until I finished high school that I just went, you know, this is what I want to do and, you know, took the, the leap to, to go in and start to do some creative stuff. And that's when I sort of started to make little 
short films then and then started in um, at university and just completely embraced film history and I love those subjects where you're just sort of studying, you know, film after film and, and you know, looking at the narrative and breaking it down and I just completely got immersed in this world and I, I was 20 years later I still haven't come out. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um... So I guess to kind of circle back to what you where we where we started that point and talking about Guyton Grantley, were there any kind of relationships that you began, um, you know, just coming out of high school uh, that you still continue to use? I know that you you know you did mention um, Guyton, who you met while you were studying. Uh, what, what benefits do you see, I suppose, in you know going to film school, going to drama school? perhaps uh, as opposed to just getting an on-set experience or a practical ex- education? Yeah, quite a few people ask me that, you know, do I need to go to film school or should I just... And there's there's really no right and wrong way to do it. I guess it um, really depends on the person. If you can get a good school and a good teacher, I think that's the the critical thing. And um, But in much the same way, if you if you can get a, a, a job in a... In, on a film set or in a production company and do your time there, you can learn. It's the same skill set, really. Um, and so I don't think there's a right or a wrong way. I mean, I guess I decided I had to do a university degree because it seemed the most, I guess, conventional thing to do. And it was, for me, it was pretty daring anyway that I wasn't, you know, studying architecture or engineering or something. So, um, a formal degree was as close to, you know, being normal as possible in <laughs> that sort of sphere. So, um, but I think, you, you know, it's equally, you know, as much merit in just diving straight in these days and starting your own YouTube channel and getting creative that way. So, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if and it's just the access to, um, you know, streaming services now and, you know, and, and and this new kind of media and, you know, you know, you can really get by without having that formal kind of education. I mean, I've, I've got a couple of degrees and I've never actually ever had to present or show my degrees to anyone. You know, I've probably spent six or seven years at university and, you know, no one, I've never needed them other than it gives me confidence to be able to do a certain thing. So Yeah. <laughs> Well, I suppose there's a lot to be said for that, and I guess my initial point was um, was about the the sort of the relationships that you could potentially make in those places that you I guess you'd probably make similar relationships if you were out in the industry working as well. So, yeah, I think I think you do. I mean, I think because it's such a tight knit community, the film industry, and you know, people, um, you know, there's. Seemed if they love it, they love it, and they seem to be around. I mean, the guys I've used, you know, I've sort of done directed commercials and things from my production company over the years to pay the bills, and you know, I've used a lot of guys, and they're all on my Facebook, and they're all posting about the new Ari Alexa, and they're these guys are just it's in their blood, and they they love it, and they just uh, make it work. So you know, and, and they they pop up in your in your life on various projects um you know i've got some guys that was the cinematographer on on a couple of shorts in music videos and then you know you get him to come and shoot your wedding because you know he's good and he's a mate and 
you know, so I think these relationships just continue and, and that's why it's such a, I, you know, I love the industry because I love the, um, I love the people that work in it and especially when you get a project that everyone's passionate about and you see how much work people put into something that's, you know, so it's not about the money, it's not the overtime, it's, it's a level of commitment to something that's kind of bigger than them and bigger than the, well, certainly bigger than their paycheck, but, um, uh, um, the, that's the best part about this whole, whole industry, I think, is the, um, the relationships you make and the, you know, and that shared experience of creating something. So what was the, um, the experience like of, say, creating a film like Crooked Business? But that was your first feature, wasn't it? It was, yeah. So, I mean, I, I um, you know, when you're at you know, film school and your parents and everyone says, look, it's, you know, it's this sort of industry and that, you know, you, most people don't get anywhere on. And, and I remember just giving, making a promise to myself then, like, oh, I would definitely get my first feature film up before I'm 30 um and that was when I was like probably about 18 or 19 I made that promise and then I actually then got um so I'd just done a short film with Chris Nice and acted in it and um and then he had this film called script called Crooked Business that he had um he had some other producers on it at the time and um and I was doing some working at the time as a a casting director with Ben Parkinson because I thought I'd might as well learn that side of things as well, and um, and so I was helping out with the casting of this film. Um, and at the eleventh hour, I think we were about six weeks out from shooting, and the producers said, "Look, the funding's fallen over," and um, and Chris Nice, who you know he'd written and produced Getting Square, which everyone seems to know and love. Um, he said, he rang me and said, oh, mate, I, I've put so much work in this crooked business. I've written it. And, um, I, I can't have this thing fall over on me. Can you have a look at the, read the script again, um, have a look and see if what you can do it for? You know, it's, um, I think he said, look, I, I've been able to raise like 400 grand and can you make it for that? And the budget at the time was like two, over two, I think. And so then I sort of went off oh, shit. So I stayed up all night um, and did up this very crude budget. I wasn't using any um, film soft budgeting software or anything. So it was just an Excel doc. And I just stayed up all night and put this thing together. And the budget came in at, I think, came in at six, right on 600 grand. And um, I met him the next morning at a little cafe in. in called Bumbles on the Gold Coast where I ended up, ended up getting married actually with my, to my wife and um, and met him there and said, I can't do it for 400 but I think I can do it for 600 and and he said, all right, let's let's do it. And so I found an investor and, um, and so we're sort of six weeks out and then just was the most intense period to try and pick it up because you had to – you know, find a crew basically to work for next to nothing. And, you know, I wasn't being paid and there's just no money. It was, you know, you know the, the, the rule of making a low-budget film, you know, not many characters, not many locations and no action. Yeah. So Crook had heaps of characters, locations everywhere, you know, 
kind of flamboyant costumes and like the whole thing was just completely at odds with that model. And um, so it was a, you know, incredibly tough experience. I mean, I was working because I was producing, I was going to cast the whole thing, I cast all extras and then I was acting in it. And so I was probably sleeping somewhere around three hours a night for, you know, the duration of the, you know, all pre and, and all of the shoot. So it was, it was tough. But, you know, we got there and made a, a decent little film for the budget and, you know, got a small theatrical release. Um, and then, you know, so then went to the film festival there in New York where I met, met you over there and that was really a great experience. You know, and then did a DVD deal with DVD deal with Beyond when DVDs actually people were buying them, and um, and Channel Ten bought the rights office um, and and to the film, and so it screened a few times. So you know, in terms of a little low budget, you know, indie film, it, it did pretty well. You know, it had Aunt Doe in it and Taylor Guyer and um, you know. Ferris Durrani, who's now in House Husbands and has done some great work since then. Um, that was a good cast and it was a good, um, really great experience, actually. Um, I was uh, very fortunate to to be able to have that opportunity and I ended up getting my film made. I think we'd finished the, the, the cut um, just before I turned 30. So I, I technically got that into my goals of having made my first film by the time I was 30. So. <laughs> so what was the, what was the experience like, I suppose, comparatively to, you know, what you've, what you've just finished? Uh, you know, there's, I guess there's a lot of airtime in between, um, in between the two films and a lot of experience gained and, and um, other things made, but, you know, you come to sort of don't tell, which is, this you know amazing um, courtroom drama with you know Rachel Griffiths and um, Jack Thompson, uh, just you know kind of next level um, on every level. What was the experience like by contrast? Yeah, I mean the workload was uh, no less. I actually think it was more to this um, don't tell. Um, I guess I learned a lot of things on that first film, and they, you know you can. You can only stretch things so far when you have no money because um, you end up just making so many sacrifices to what would have been a better scene and um, and a better, you know, you know, overall narrative if you could have had some more action and have some any number of things. So it's, um, you know, you, you just need a certain amount of money and so the, the budget on um, Don't Tell was... Um, quite a bit higher but you kind of need that you just have to have you have to give you know your actors these certain actors when you get a cast like Rachel Griffiths and Jack Thompson and there's Jack Jacqueline McKenzie and Marty Sachs and Susie Porter I mean it's an absolute producer's dream really I mean you're hoping to get one or two of these people you know I mean I you know and then sort of Aiden Young and Robert Taylor I mean it's one of the you know best casts I've seen in a long time and but you know they're all such professionals that they require a certain type of um you know makeup and wardrobe and they also need a certain level of you know accommodation and rehearsals and things like that and they're just the baseline to be able to create good work um so there's only so many corners you can cut um unless you're doing 
you know, you know, Robert Rodriguez and you're making some, you know, crazy kind of a low budget sort of action film where the, the actual genre becomes more important than the performances or you know, there's plenty of great directors that have started out in, in horror and things like that, but you don't necessarily need named cast or brilliant performers in that genre. So, but this is a performance-driven piece and I knew that all along. Don't Tell had to be an actor-driven piece. Um, and, how, did, how, did um, the, uh, how did the film come to you? Well, it came to me through um, uh, a guy called Steve Roach and uh, he was the actual uh, original lawyer in the case, um, played in the film by Aidan Young. And um, so Steve had um, uh, had this case, which is one of his early ones, and um, he'd found since then that the not much had changed in the, um, in the, the world of, you know, child sex abuse and, and, and cover-ups of institutions like, you know, the Catholic and Anglican institutions and, and not just religion either in, you know, all across, you know, sporting arenas and things like that. So he'd written a book and then um, also called Don't Tell and, and he'd sort of self-published that and it was being uh, handed out at, some, at schools and things like that a little bit, but it just wasn't being picked up. And uh, he came to me and said, look, I've always loved movies. Um, it came to me via Chris Nice, actually, and then um, who I did crooked business with, and um, both of them being lawyers. And um, he said, oh, look, I've always loved films. I thought maybe making a movie would be a good way to get this message out. He said, and he kind of went, oh, how hard is that to do? And I, went, I looked at him. I oh, mean, it's virtually impossible. Um, bear in mind, I'd had since finished Crooked Business. I think, yep, I've done my first feature. It's all going to be downhill from here. I'm off and running. So, But since then, I had maybe five other scripts that I'd worked on and developed up and got close to getting up and all had fallen over. So there's nearly a, you know, I, I just finished Don't Tell same deal. I was, you know, before my 40th birthday, I'm on the set with Jack Thompson. And I went, oh, that's a pretty bloody good way to spend your 40th. But, you know, essentially there's a 10-year period between features where I did nothing but work my ass off to try and get films up. And I had so many scripts had fallen over, I even moved to London and to work up on a co-production over there. How do you manage and to kind of stay afloat? in that time while you while you get trying to get those up oh i've been um since uh 2004 i'd been running my own production company so i started my own production um company that made tv commercials and uh music videos um and corporate videos and things so i'd, I'd been running that since then so that was what i did on the side and films were my passion so um, you know, I've directed and done so many commercials. A lot of them are just mind-numbingly boring, like retail commercials where you spend all day with your client trying to work out, you know, what logo size they want on there and what special discount offer. But, you know, they pay the bills and you do learn your craft, you know, like you're working with editors and you're working with camera guys. And so the guys I, I give... Um, you know, paid jobs to being TV commercials, then you call them up on the weekend and say, mate, I'm, I'm shooting a music video. Can you come and do this for me? I'll, you know, I'll pay you nothing. And they you know, <laughs> inevitably 
give you a hand because one they like to do cool stuff as well and and also you you know they know they're going to get a paid job out of you the next week so um i did all that so that's basically i was paying my bills and have done for for you know almost since i left uni so i've sort of only ever worked for myself and um and so that's how I'd sort of filled that 10-year period while I had all these films falling over. And, and they do for a number of reasons. And um, It's a very tough industry to get a, a project up, and mainly because the, um, the financials don't really stack up to work for investors. Um, and it's just the way our model is. And it's great that we have, um, you know, assistance and things for you know from our state and 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 federal you know agencies but it does create a false system down the line where exhibitors take a certain amount and then distributors take a certain amount and they want their first money out you know pa pna out first and so it creates this really complex funding arrangement that doesn't allow investors to get their money back let alone make profit on almost just about every film I've ever heard of. Um, so it, it's very difficult. So there's a number of reasons why all my other projects sort of fell over um, in in that middle there. But then, um, you know, when Don't Tell came to me, I um, thought, oh, this is going to be incredibly hard. But I read Steve's book and it um, the story was just so kind of, it, it, you know, sort of so inspiring that this girl had... Is the first girl to take, you know, the Anglican Church to court over cover-ups on her child sex abuse, and at the time, um, Spotlight hadn't hadn't come out. So when I started making Don't Tell and adapting the book and the first draft to the, you know, with a writer called Anne Brooksbank, um, Spotlight hadn't even come out. I hadn't heard of it, and so, um, and you know, it's and, and it then became this this other thing once I met Lyndall and met the the real lawyers and things like that and just sort of kept pushing and, and um, it eventually sort of got some momentum and get cast and um, and you know, then, you know, sort of a th- nearly, almost a th- it was a three-year period between starting reading about reading that book and, and now where the film's, you know, in cinemas or just on the back of its run at the moment. But um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a long process and a tough one, but it's been a really rewarding one, this, this film in particular. What was it like, I suppose, on a sort of day-to-day basis working with such amazing cast? Oh, it was phenomenal. It really was. I'm, so I was the only sort of producer on the film. So I had executive producer being Steve Roach and, and he hadn't made anything at all in in this um, area before, so I, I decided, look, I'll only be I'll be the only producer. I won't bring anyone else on. Uh, not that I didn't think I needed someone, or I could certainly do it with the help, but I just figured that if I brought another producer on, then they would want to take a, a, a fee, you know, and rightfully so. But if I did it myself, I could use that fee because this would be an above the line fee. To secure an extra actor, an extra cast member that had some sort of clout. So this is my early thinking, and so um, you know, and I guess in a, you know, I guess it's worked because an incredible cast there, but it made the the process incredibly exhausting. So 
because um, I was sort of handling, doing a lot of different jobs on it and working incredibly long hours. But, you know, when you get to this, you know, you get to the set and the first day there of shooting, you, you know, we're in Ipswich in this beautiful farmhouse. and It was a drought scene, so it's the, they're in a farm, they're a farming family and they're in drought. And so our first day of shooting, it starts to rain. Like, and, and I'm thinking, oh my god, this is a bad start. But um, you know, Jack Thompson arrives, and then Susie Porter and um, Rachel Griffiths, and so we're out in this makeshift, um, you know, set up in the middle of the field with these tents. And and I think, oh, this is just an absolute dream come true. It's sort of a pinch yourself moment where you just, you know. I'm in the in the tent there on my computer trying to balance all of the requests that's coming in and I'm just surrounded in the catering tent by this magnificent cast of actors and you think, oh, wow, we're about to um, take off on a pretty good creative journey, which it certainly was. Incredible. This is incredible. I think that, you know, that's... For me, that's kind of the dream is to be in that in the throes of that uh, that kind of situation. It's a real treat. It really is. And, and these are people that have um, shaped and been so influential on the Australian film industry and and, um, and other areas of the arts too, you know. Um, you know, Jack Thompson plays a harmonica and, I mean, the guy's a, an incredibly talented person and just a really good bloke, actually. I've got to know him quite well over the last, you know, couple of years and... Um, We've just done a lot of media and press together where we go down and do press days in Sydney and he was on, on the project recently, so I was sort of down with him there. And, and um, you know, these are just new, I hopefully think you class them as new friends that, you know, you might work together on another project, but it's just an absolute treat. And, and, and these are the people that, you know, you can, they're named actors that people recognise, but then, you know, you put them aside and then you've got, this fabulous crew and, you know, from the makeup and hair, Shane Thomas, who's an incredibly talented guy. I've never met someone so talented in, in that field, you know, and then you've got Mark Wareham and, and, and Ross Wallace and then you end up getting Bridie Marks scoring the film and you've got Missy Higgins then writes a special song for it. So you're just surrounded by this immense pool of, like, talented people. So... You know, the guys in the camera department are the, you know, as good as anyone at what they do. And then the, the you know, whoever's, the, you know, the guys and girls in the wardrobe and the production design and everyone's just so bloody good at what they do. It's just fascinating to be involved and working, walk, working around and walking around as well to all the departments and seeing what they're doing to each set and, you know, sharing ideas. And it's such a good collaborative environment, the film set, it, it really is a uh it was a, a fabulous experience you know just shooting this film you know tough but you know when you've got a great crew and it certainly helps when you've got a a, a story that really connects with everyone and Lyndall who the, the film's about that's um she's the survivor that came forward she came to set and so she just you know was a giant boost of inspiration for everyone she'd come and visit everyone for lunch and the catering um um, hall where we had set up in this old building and um, you know so then you get a crew that have a, have a, a purpose and a story to tell that's bigger than 
bigger than you know than them and and it just really helps what do you think one of the biggest lessons that you would have taken from uh, jack thompson would have been uh i think it's his ability to um just uh, i guess it is his ability to take a project and then bring out the very best in it um he's such a big presence and he's um uh, so passionate about the arts and um i just love that about him and he's a, he's a fascinating man so he's very interested in a lot of things other than you know he's not just you know a film geek for example he, I mean, there's so many facets to him and um just the way he approaches a film you know and he comes to set and he's very very professional i mean this is a guy with a huge reputation in the industry and you know if anyone has the right to have a, a an ego then it's probably jack thompson but he he just doesn't like he's all about the project and the work and I think that's what I take most for him from him really I mean he was just this calming influence on set Jack had come in and it kind of he kind of leads you know he leads by his example and and everyone else sort of you know he's like this you know godfather of you know Aussie cinema in a way and I think that's what I've learned from him is his I guess dedication, dedication to the to the craft, and 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 also he 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 knows that not every project works and and gets great reviews, and um and there's a lot of reasons for that, and it's some of them are beyond your control. So it's um it's not an easy thing making a film because you're bringing together an enormous amount of talented people and um trying to get them to have shared visions, and you know, and, and then you're trying to then as a producer reel in these budgets because you've got these you know other pressures on you to know that if you know the if you don't get this project finished and you can't pay the final paycheck to these these people you've agreed to employ then the whole thing can fall over and you don't even have a product so as a producer you're kind of the you're saying no to a lot of people when you secretly would like to say yes because you know saying yes is going to create a better scene but you just can't afford it so um, you've got to walk that sort of bit of a tightrope, that one. But you know, that's the job of the producer, I guess. Absolutely. How how would you uh, define the film's success, or how will you know the the film has been a success? Yeah, well, I was thinking about that because you know, the, most Australian films don't, and this is a sad indictment on the industry, and probably on our audience more more so than the industry, but. Um, Aussie films aren't don't do all that well at the box office, and they don't last too long in cinemas. And um, but there's a lot of amazing films that have been made in this country that just haven't been seen by too many people. So, um, and so I guess there's a number of ways you can judge a film. You can judge it on its you know critical reviews. You can judge it on um, the effect it's had on that audience that did see it. Um, and I guess you can. I guess the best thing way to judge a film, you know, is over time. You just sort of step back and see how it how it works. I mean, it's a different world now. We've got, you know, films that are on, you know, playing on Netflix and streaming services that you could only once see at the cinema because the quality was so high. So, you know, I've been talking to. I was lucky enough to be working with um, on this film as well with Terry Jackman, who's a 
incredible um, force in the film industry here in Australia and in exhibition. And um, he um, came on as a, one of the executive producers and helped us with the theatrical release. And, um, and Terry's, you know, he and I catch up quite a bit and he's sort of talking now about, you know, what films are cinema, theatrical worthy, because we've got such good content on television and Netflix and, you know, and unless it's kind of a Marvel Comics epic multi, you know, $100 million special effects production, people aren't seeing it as being worthy of their 15 bucks to throw down. Um, and so it's, it's, it's pretty hard to judge the success of an Aussie film and, and, and any film, but you know, it does have a life now after once it does finish, you know, I'm still in the cinemas and still holding on. You get cut sessions, get cut pretty quick. Um, because the influence the studios have on getting their films in and be it, um, alien or John wick two or whatever else is out there at the moment, they get a lot more sessions than your Aussie films do because and exhibitors, you know, I guess need to play them multiple sessions to keep those relationships up, but they don't need to keep the relationship up with me because it may be another 10 years before I get my next film up. Who knows? <laughs> so uh, hopefully. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, got a, it's going to have a life after this. You know, we're going to release it on a couple of film festivals and then you do your video on demand, your airline, your... Foxtel's, free to airs, you know, and um, all those ancillary markets. So hopefully, you know, the film don't tell will still stick around and be in viewed by you know audiences for years to come. So I guess you measure the success in a number of ways, really. Do you have anything uh, that you're going to be moving on to uh, your next project, the next film to to try and get up? Yeah, well, I've got. Um, I did a screening of the um, uh, Don't Tell last night. So we've partnered with a number of charities and Bravehearts is one. So did these charity screenings. So we did one last night at um, Pacific Fair on the Gold Coast and Lyndall came along and Hetty Johnson was there and the film, oh, there's probably about 150 supporters came along and um, and I was going to, I've seen this film probably a hundred times. I've done so many screenings and I thought, oh, this is, I'm not going to watch this one and because and, I had a script to read that I um, I want to make next. And then I get introduced to it, you know, as I and say hello to the audience there and I think I'm going to duck out, but the configuration of this new cinema wouldn't allow me to leave. So I went, oh, God. So I, I ended up staying there. So I didn't um, get to read this script, but I, I've... I've um, of looking at this synopsis and developing um, it up a little bit... Um, I do have a project with a uh, LA writer I want to work on next, and it's a bit more of a comedy, but with a bit of a, um, I guess, a bit of a moral, you know, consciousness there uh, in in part of it. So um, that's the next film. So I'm trying to work on trying to trying to get another feature up, and um, these things take a little bit of time. I need to try and work out how to um, make it as an Australian film, or make it as a you know, a US film set here, like is what's happening at the studios here on the Gold Coast a lot, or um, Peter and Michael Spirig are doing one in Melbourne at the moment, which is, um, you know, it's all, you know, it's all, it's all for intended purposes, an American production, but it's all shot here. So um, I just need to work out what the sort of scale and, and the, and this, 
you know the direction of this next next project is but i'm quite keen to move on to that as soon as i wrap up my don't tell and all my financial quape estimates and and all those sort of things so i'm getting swamped in in all the paperwork at the moment but i'll be on to the next project pretty soon i think do you think it will be easier to get the next one up i'd, I'd, I'd like to think so i made some good contacts sort of here in in la i mean we did the um uh, don't tell well premiered at the newport beach film festival in in april um and uh, won audience award over there. So I, I ended up meetings. I took took a few good meetings in LA there, and have, have made some uh, some pretty decent contacts. So I, you know, I, I'd like to think the next one will be a bit easier because Don't Tell's been reviewed so well, and um, um, and I'm very proud of it. And I think it's a sort of a, a film that you know I'm happy to be judged on because I think if I can make that, I can you know certainly do other other you know films of equal quality and um so i'm hoping it sort of makes the next one a bit easier than than the than, than the first couple have been well i wish you uh i wish you good luck with that i hope it does uh prove to be more straightforward than and uh <laughs> with a bit less airtime between between features um really great to catch up scott great to chat uh, and i finish uh, all of my podcast rambles with one question, which is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Um, at the moment, my um, 15-month-old daughter, Farah, um, she was born during pre-production, which, you know, way to make the whole process even harder. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I, I was um, pretty much not, I wasn't around for the first eight weeks of her life. I was on set trying to hold things together. And uh, I think my wife's only just forgiven me now that I took it to the Newport Beach film premiere and the red carpets, and she was kind of, you know, enjoyed that. So I think I've got a, I've been forgiven there. But my little daughter makes me silly, really. I, um, it's, uh, she's just a little treasure. How does she make you silly? Oh, just, you know, you get to be a kid again and you get to, you know, while they're playing with, you know, farms and um you know all sorts of toys and you know taking them down and talking to ducks and all that kind of stuff so um whatever makes her laugh i'll do <laughs> <laughs> what do the ducks say yeah <laughs> they don't talk back to me <laughs> all right. they just want bread and that's it <laughs> silly ducks <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks so much scott thanks for your time <laughs>